The History Show with Kieran Doyle on West Cork FM. This week we feature a Clonacilty Ducas lecture. They invited on John Borgonova of UCC, charismatic and very interesting character. John gave us a really great insight into the theatre of war between uh, submarines and the Navy during World War I, as well as what was going on locally in Ireland, down in Cove, Bantry and Whitty Island. So sit back, listen and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, I'm very welcome to our October lecture. In, uh, tonight is about the First World War in West Cork, really, in Cove in particular. Our speaker is John Barganova. Some of you might know John already. John lectures in UCC. Um, he's written extensively on Sinn Féin, the IRA, the Irish Volunteers, uh, the Civil War, and the War of Independence. <coughs> uh, he's written a lot, like I said, his, his re- most recent project, like just briefly, the, the book about the Irish Revolution, the Dictionary of the Irish Revolution, a fantastic book, and it's going to be a reference book for years to come for anyone that's interested in history. So, could I ask you all please to just put your phones in silent, and I'll introduce our speaker, John Barbanon. Thanks for the invitation. Nice to be back down here. Uh, I also want to salute my uh, distinguished colleague, Dominic Carroll, who was the uh, copy edit and proofing on the Atlas of the Irish Revolution, which was a huge project for him and for us. So thank you, Dominic. Uh, I'll give <clears throat> his business card after I sell you my next condos. Um, Okay, so I'm going to talk to you tonight uh, a bit about uh, the underwater uh, war that was waged off of Irish coasts and really the Cork coast during the First World War and kind of this idea of submarine warfare. Um, And what I find kind of fascinating about this history is that we're kind of used to looking at the First World War and thinking about just all the kind of slaughter and big machine guns and artillery and kind of human folks not being able to comprehend what's going on in Flanders and in trenches and not being able to really understand the new technology that's to play. But you have something quite similar go on uh, in terms of the introduction of the submarine and uh, how it took a very long time for effective kind of countermeasures to to be implemented and really the place where they were implemented was here in Cork and in Cove, uh, but also very much in uh, Castletown Bear and uh, out in Bantry Bay as well. And this whole area was, and the coast right off here, off of Colon was just a hotbed in terms of anti-submarine activity and patrolling and what have you. So uh, this is kind of a, a very important period in terms of the First World War in terms of making sure that Britain wasn't forced out of the war owing to a really strict submarine blockade by the Germans. Uh, And so it's kind of, it's probably the most, in terms of global history, it's probably the most important impact Ireland has in terms of events here, uh, you know, at least in the 20th century. 
So uh, if we just think about the technology uh, of all this, so you know, the Industrial Revolution had changed just the way people were fighting wars and you have all these different technologies. So kind of the big one for me in terms of a lot of the military stuff is just the idea of high explosives, which is pretty, you know, high explosives really get introduced and kind of perfected at the end of the century, beginning of the 20th century. And that really changes the way artillery works and also kind of the explosive payload of something like in a bomb or in something like an artillery shell or in something like a torpedo. All of a sudden you can deliver a hell of a bang rather than just shooting a projectile. You can have something that will actually blow up or detonate. Um, and uh, in terms of naval warfare, they were also able to develop these things through the torpedo. And torpedoes have little engines on them, you can launch them, they move fast, they have a big payload. And when they detonate, maybe they hit a side of a ship and they cave it in, blow it up, or maybe they you know, hit just glance off it, but the, the explosion sends out shockwaves that might buckle plates of a ship, a steel ship. Um, and for the first kind of years of uh, the 20th century, Torpedoes were launched by ships, by small kind of vessels, torpedo boats. And the Japanese had, had great success with torpedo boats sinking the Russian Navy uh, at port and, and uh, at the outset of their war with Russia. Um, good thing the Americans were, weren't studying that. Uh, surprise attack by Japanese torpedoes. Um, but from that, uh, there was a new vessel developed called the Destroyer and it was called the Torpedo Destroyer. And it was meant to basically follow the big, huge battleships, the big dreadnoughts, and to intercept torpedo boats that might come in over the surface and maybe even steer and intercept torpedoes that are launched. So uh, just what's called a destroyer, it's a small warship. Uh, it moved really fast, about 30, 35 knots, uh, and it was pretty lightly armed. And so the modern Navy started building these destroyers. And they were also really good for kind of big fleet activity because you could run messages, they can kind of you know patrol, they're kind of dogs' bodies, and if you want to run someone back to shore, a destroyer can do that. But they're not real powerful warships, but they're there. And so they're gonna feature into all this. Um, now the submarine uh, really, you know, the, we have a, a strong connection from Cork in terms of John Philip Holland from uh, Cork City, educated at the Mon, uh, who kind of designed and really uh, perfected the early uh, whole bunch of different technological innovations that were key to the development of the modern submarine, like you know, double barrel hull, the shape, all kinds of little engines. He had all these different patents. Um, submarines were still a pretty new type of vessel by 1915, 1914, when the war broke out. Um, they hadn't been really deployed as a combat ship before, so they weren't really known. They weren't really a known quantity. Um, most navies had small submarine fleets. So the Germans at the outset had about 25 submarines, which isn't really that big. You could only, you know, maybe half of those would be at sea at any one time. Um, submarines had a range at that time of maybe 2,000 miles. Uh, so they got going uh, out and back. They carried about six torpedoes, so not that many. Um, 
they had about, and they always travel faster on the surface than underwater. Um, and uh, the Germans hadn't really done any innovation with submarines. The Royal Navy had about the same number. The Americans had a small number. The French had a small number. So there wasn't really any kind of big German strategy to deploy submarines at the outset of the war. What they did think, though, the Germans, they thought they were going to big, have to fight a big, huge fleet battle with the Royal Navy. That was going to be the German fleet against the Royal Navy and a big, you know, big Donnybrook. Uh, and they sought for ways, because the, the Royal Navy outnumbered the Germans in terms of these big kind of capital ships, these big battleships that, you know, shoot cannons, you know, 20 miles and move fast and what have you. So the German strategy was to try to lower the odds and lower the discrepancy between the two forces. So they did things like they sent out a lot of like little raider cruisers, ships that were disguised like freighters to go out and attack merchant shipping, to draw a lot of these British ships out to protect imperial possessions around the world. Uh, and then they also deployed their submarines, again, to attack some merchant shipping, again, maybe to attack warships in order to draw ships, Royal Navy uh, battleships and dreadnoughts out of the big master of the big fleet. Uh, and so it wasn't really, they didn't really see much combat potential, but they decided to send these out um, and just see what happened. And what really occurs is that the submarines that are deployed by the Germans are much more successful than anybody had anticipated. And they just start sinking uh, a high number of vessels in early 1915. Um, and one thing about the, uh, the way this worked is, as I said, they, they only carried a few torpedoes on board. So generally what a German submarine would do is it would, there were all kinds of international laws around taking prizes and seizing ships. And basically, according to the laws of the sea, although I'm sure I'm gonna be corrected by this in the Q&A, uh, you can, uh, uh, you can basically a, com a combatant can intercept the vessels and search them and see if they're carrying war supplies for their enemy. And if they are, they can sink those vessels or take them or capture them. So the British would capture vessels and take them back to port and search them. The Germans basically just would sink vessels that they, that they found were carrying uh, war supplies to their enemy. So the way they did this typically was they would surface, come alongside, uh, board the ship, and uh, if it was carrying supplies, they would allow the, the crew time to leave and then they might send down a little scuttling charge, a little bomb that they put in the bottom of the ship and that would detonate and sink it, no loss of life. Or they would uh, sink it, they had a little, all the German submarines had cannons and they would just fire a few rounds at the waterline and sink it that way. Very rarely did they actually attack with torpedoes because they only carried a few and it was kind of a long way back to port. Um, so this is all good um, for the Germans. Uh, but things kind of escalate rather quickly. The British put a very strict blockade on German, Germany and they prohibited the importation of food and kind of all other kind, a lot of supplies that wouldn't normally be considered uh, war supplies under international law. So the Germans felt hard done by. And actually this food blockade would eventually cause big massive food shortages in Germany, kind of 1917, 1918. So the Germans felt 
justified in ramping up their attacks on shipping going into Britain. Um, and uh, they, were, they started attacking more and more aggressively. Uh, and the British responded by arming their merchant ships. So merchant ships are, are unarmed usually and kind of you know, given certain kind of protections. But the Admiralty put cannons and put Royal Navy crews, gun crews on these ships and also ordered British merchant ships to ram German submarines that surfaced. So that rather short-term policy had big implications because it incentivized the, the German submarines to attack without warning. And a no-warning submarine attack sinks you, you know, in moments and it leads to a high loss of life. So things kind of started escalating and you had more and more of these no-warning attacks uh, by the uh, German Navy. And so, uh, if we go next slide, please. Uh, the, uh, the most, you know, kind of famous episode is the sinking of Lusitania, not that far from here, uh, which is a passenger ship, which is sunk without warning, um, with massive loss of life. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about Lusitania being sunk, um, except that uh, one of the reasons it was such a, well, it was a big deal for two things. One, it was a big passenger liner that sank with, with over a thousand people dying, so that's a big story. It's not that long after Titanic sank, and Titanic was this kind of big, huge global media event, so it's kind of echoing that. Um, the other thing was that the German government had warned the Americans, public, not to travel in Lusitania because of danger of U-boat attacks. The German embassy ran newspaper ads warning the folks against traveling. Um, they didn't know, and so warnings appeared right as Lusitania was sailing out of New York. On that return journey, the vessel was sunk, and it looked to the American public like the German government deliberately sank her, that there was a policy to sink Lusitania. And it was just actually a coincidence in you know, German efficiency, where they were just, they were just sending out a warning. There's a possibility Lusitania could be sunk. And so when Lusitania was sunk, it looked like it was a deliberate, uh, a deliberate policy by the German government to sink passenger liners with massive loss of life. Got another slide, please. And that was used by the very effective British propaganda arm to uh, kind of justify uh, waging the war on a humanitarian grounds to stop this kind of German barbarism and German Prussian brutality and militarism. So it played into a lot of these propaganda themes and that's kind of why it's so effective uh, in terms of why it's such an important event. The Americans did not enter the war because of Lusitania. They only entered the war two years later. But what it did do was it's, it's really kind of started swinging public opinion towards the Allies and against Germany because it was seen as such a kind of unprecedented act and kind of a really brutal act. So, can I get another slide, please? Um, so the Germans had ramped up attacks on uh, Allied shipping in uh, 1915. It wasn't very well planned. They only had about eight vessels at sea at any one time. But in our six, they had six vessels, uh, submarines kind of off of the British coast and kind of off of the French coast. Um, but those six submarines in a few months sank 
sank 4% of all British merchant shipping. So they were tremendously, outrageously successful. And they just sank ships going back out and there was no protection um, for the vessels that were going out there. And um, it was only because uh, of American protests over these sinkings uh, and fear that the Americans would enter the war that the German government suspended this kind of attack. There was also a second um, vessel, American, it was an American flag vessel that was sunk off of Fastnet called Arabia, is that right? Uh, and that was probably, that almost brought the Americans into the war about a month or two after Lusitania. So the British, German government basically said, all right, enough of this carry on with the submarines. We're going to bring in the Americans and we don't want that. So they kind of, they made it much more difficult for submarine commanders to attack merchant shipping. And uh, they had restrictions on submarine warfare. So can I get another slide, please? Um, so by 1917, the German Admiralty, the Germans are losing the war. They need a kind of game changer. Um, the German Navy had invested a lot of time and money building more submarines. And they convinced the, the German high command that if they really went nuts on sinking, they went, removed all restrictions um, on attacks and they declared a big submarine blockade around the UK that they could force the British out of the war in about six months. Now they knew that this kind of unrestricted submarine warfare would bring the United States into the war because the Americans were a big, they were trading a lot with the Allies, with the UK, and they're also a major shipping power as well. And the Americans are seen as kind of a big economic potential, you know, they don't, they're a, a, a global power at this stage. Um, and the German government decides to go for it. And they, they gamble that they could force the British out of the war before the American intervention uh, will have any kind of significant impact. So in early 1917, uh, they declare a blockade around all waters, around Ireland and Britain, and announce that they'll sink anything, any vessel going in, whether, whether it's a neutral vessel, whether it's a merchant vessel, whether it's a combatant, or what have you. Everything, anything going in is gonna get sunk. And as you can see from the stats, uh, the number of vessels sunk rises dramatically. Uh, and um, the, sorry, um, okay, um, they are able to, I'm not going to get into tonnage, um, so the Germans put about 140 U-boats out to sea, uh, or have 140 U-boats compared in 1917 compared to 28 in 1914. And they have probably about half of those at the sea at any one time. So they've really jacked up the number that they deployed. Um, and they have, um, they're, and they're building more quickly. So uh, the British have, oh, I'm not gonna get into tonnage. They sink a ton of, they take a, a, they sink a massive number of vessels in the first six months of 1917. Uh, at one point by April, 1917, one out of every four ship leaving British ports is sunk. And the British just can't maintain it. They can't make, they're losing so many more, they're losing so many vessels that they can't maintain their war output. They can't feed their troops in the field, they can't supply their troops in the field, and they can't feed the home population. 
It's because of this that they start introducing food rationing, which panics people. Um, and there's a real fear that they're not going to be able to maintain their, uh, the war effort. And uh, just to give you an example uh, of the, the number of vessels that are sunk in Irish waters, in 1917, uh, it's like about 5,000 survivors of sunk vessels are landed in Cove alone. That gives you an indication of how many people are, how many vessels are being, hundreds of vessels are being sunk. Uh, and it's affecting the war effort and the British don't know what to do. So they try a number of different techniques. They invest in some kind of hair, kind of harebrained uh, research projects, training seagulls to recognize cunning towers. They try to train seals to recognize uh, submarines. And I don't know if you've worked with seals before, but they're lazy and fickle and they have no loyalty or honor. And so when the seals are trained to identify submarines, as soon as they smell the open ocean, they're gone, they never come back. Uh, so that stuff doesn't work. Uh, the, uh, they also come up with this great idea, the Q ship, the mystery ship. And do I have another slide here? Uh, another one? No, I don't have one. Anyway, back. Back one, please. Uh, so the Q ship, they're, they're called, there was a big top secret. Basically, they were um, warships disguised to look like freighters especially kind of like new freighters of neutral vessels. So one thing to keep around about neutral vessels is they would paint on the sides neutral or like the big flag of their country, big, huge, white, so you can't miss it. So if you're looking through a conning tower, you're like, okay, that's clearly a Norwegian vessel because it says Norway on the side. Uh, so these Q ships were disguised to look like neutral vessels, merchant vessels, uh, but they had secret compartments. And so the whole idea was, if a German submarine surfaces and they row over to inspect the uh, ship to see if it's carrying any war goods, the uh, ship would have, would put a, what they call a panic crew who are disguised like Norwegian sailors and they go on a rowboat and they kind of run around like they're under attack, but they have a secret cannon group. And as soon as the German submarine got close, they'd kind of lower the side of the ship and the cannon would pop out and they'd sink the German U-boat. So they thought this was great, you know. English public school boys, they get a dress up, you know, someone gets a dress like a woman, captain's wife, you know, they love it. Total boys own. So Winston Churchill, huge fan of the Q ships, thought this was gonna win the war. Um, not realizing that, you know, you gotta do that trick maybe two or three times before people cop on. And so uh, they, but, and the British invested all, they, they built tons, they built like about 150 of these Q ships. and. And then they became kind of like suicide vessels because the, the British or the Germans just kind of recognized them and sink them right away. They tried to, uh, the Royal Navy tried to convince the Americans to do this in World War II. And again, they were like, that's just kind of suicide, crazy idea. But anyway, there's still, uh, uh, some people still claim this was some kind of great feat by the Royal Navy, but I think it's just kind of typical of their really lack of thinking and clear thinking. The other thing they did was they, um, decided to hunt submarines and they'd send out kind of patrols looking around and looking for submarines but generally only thing the subs did was they just hide until the, the patrol ship went over and then they'd rise back up and they would sink uh, the 
passing and the next you know merchant ship that came alongside. The big thing about all this is the Germans were deliberately targeting merchant vessels because they carried supplies and they were kind of trying to cut off all supplies. Sorry. Um, the other thing is that uh, I don't know what's going on there. Uh, the other thing is that um, the obvious solution to all this is you convoy ships and you protect them that way. You put them in a big convoy and you have a bunch of ships around to guard them and you patrol and you get them in and out, get them out that way. And convoys have been used by every kind of navy going back to like the Romans and the Greeks. Uh, but the Royal Navy was convinced that this was too defensive and defeatist. That the way to win was to kill submarines and so to hunt them aggressively. And it's kind of, you see the similar kind of attitude about the offensive in Flanders and trench warfare, kind of the idea somehow that psychologically you have to be on the attack. And it's pretty stupid, <laughs> militarily, I would argue. Um, and as a result, uh, the, 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 uh, there's opposition from the Royal Navy from uh, using the convoy system. Um, they claim not to have enough vessels uh, to do so, to uh, adequately uh, conduct and, and protect convoys of merchant vessels. Um, one of the things about convoying is you need fast ships, fast warships to do so. Um, the, what I would emphasize, and this also comes up with some of the um, stuff about Lusitania, is all the fast good ships were with the big grand fleet blockading Germany. Uh, what was left was kind of the dregs of the Royal Navy. They had kind of just kind of crappy ships, especially in Irish waters. So Cove, they had these things called uh, the Flower Class uh, Sloop, which is an armed ship named after flowers. Again, not very warlike. Uh, one of those ships, the Bluebell, was the one that intercepted the, the, the odd off of uh, Kerry in 1916. Again, I, if I'm naming warships, not going after flowers. Um, and uh, the armed yachts, and they, and they called, they called the, the, the ships in Cove, the Royal Navy kind of fleet there, they called them the Gilbert and, and Sullivan Flotilla because they were just totally kind of, you know, armed trawlers and yachts, kind of put guns on them, slow moving flower ships and what have you. Uh, and they, the big thing is the vessels they had weren't fast enough to keep up with, with, with these kind of freighters that are moving. And they're not fast enough to overcome and kind of chase off German submarines. And the vessels that can do that are these destroyers. And because the destroyers are fast and they can do the, line, do the job, but the um, Royal Navy insisted that all of its destroyers stay with the Grand Fleet to protect them. So uh, things change. Uh, April 1917, the Americans decide to enter the war because so many of their vessels have been sunk by these German U-boats. Um, and the Americans have a pretty good Navy, but they have a bunch of dreadnoughts and cruisers. Royal Navy doesn't really need those. But can you, next slide please. But what they do have is the Americans have a nice big modern fleet of destroyers that are, are new, they burn oil, they're fast, they're well kicked, they're uh, well equipped, and uh, these are requested right away. So the first flotilla comes over, is sent over um, in May 1917, and uh, 
This is this um, painting was commissioned by the Assistant Secretary of the Navy called Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It hung in the White House Oval Office all during World War II. Uh, it's by B.F. Gribble. Uh, and um, it also gives you an idea about the American idea, the American concept of Ireland. It's called Return of the Mayflower. The Mayflower being the, you know, the English ship that delivered the first settlers to America in you know, 1600. Uh, and this kind of tension between Ireland and the rest of the UK fighting the war is gonna come back up. Um, the uh, Americans, because they have, and can I get the next slide please? Because they have um, this new Navy, this, these destroyers, they're able to make it possible to conduct convoys and to escort convoys, big, uh, big convoys of merchant ships. And the big thing, the big choke point for merchant ships is in the Irish Sea called the Danger Zone, the Western Approaches. Uh, and basically the only thing German submarines have to do is sit in the shipping lanes and just wait for ships to come and sink them. But what the convoy system does is they move fast, they use radio, which is a new technology. Um, they are able to, they don't have to go very far, they can go out and meet uh, convoys coming in from the States about 500 miles off the coast, 400 miles off the coast, and just escort them to Liverpool or wherever they need to go in the UK. Uh, later on, they're also gonna escort a lot of these American uh, ships carrying troops to uh, France as well. And the big base that these Americans operate out of is Queenstown at the time, which is Cove. Um, and by about June, uh, there are about 40 of these destroyers in Cove, and they're starting to escort big numbers of merchant ships. Can I get the next slide, please? Um, and actually, I'll, I'll stay right here for a bit. Uh, so the convoying is a huge success. Ship losses drastically decline. You'll get another slide later on. Uh, but they drastically decline. Food shortages are halted and then creep back and food supply starts creeping back up again. Uh, the British aren't knocked out of the war. The Americans are able to transport two million soldiers across the Atlantic without losing a single one to submarines. So this is a tremendously successful uh, campaign waged primarily by the American Navy, primarily operating out of Cork, out of the whole county. And basically, they, were, they used Cove as their base, and they had supplies there, and they operated there, and they had dry docks, and they had oil. And then they used Castletown Bear and Whitty Island as their forward operating base. So they would basically kind of ship out of, you know, get their, get their orders, cruise out of Cove, maybe stop and check in at like a Castletown Bear and kind of Bantry Bay, maybe not, and then keep going out, escort these vessels, zigzag them in, deposit them, everything's good. Um, the Americans started kind of upping their, their presence. So they have about, again, about 50 of these destroyers. Um, they also start building seaplane bases uh, for these big Curtis seaplanes that can have machine guns and can drop small bombs. And these start operating, they're not really, they don't really start operating until the summer of 1918, so about a year later. Um, and they build about four of these uh, bases. Uh, 
And um, one is in Ahada in, in the Lower Harbor, Cork. Uh, one's in Lockfoyle, one's in Wexford, and one's at Whitty Island. And each of them have about 400 or 500 men. Um, the, they were kind of ramping all this stuff up when the war ended in 1918, but they were, like, they were planning to have 2,000 men in Ahada and kind of lower, lower port and lower harbor, just working on the, the seaplane basis, the airplane basis. Um, and about 1,500 of them were there, it seems, at the end of the war. Can I get the next slide, please? Uh, the Americans also, they built a hospital uh, at uh, Rushbrook. Next one, please. Um, and can I get another one after this? Um, part of what made the destroyer viable in terms of um, chasing off submarines was they had also developed this new technology called a depth charge, which is basically like a barrel bomb that is triggered by how uh, deep in the water it goes. And these are rolled off the back of destroyers and you circle around where you think the submarine are and you, you drop these and you kind of set them for different depths and they detonate and they send out big shock waves that buckle the sides of submarines or make them dive so deep that they can't come back up again, basically. So this kind of submarine, anti-submarine activity is key. The Americans only sink one submarine in the whole war, uh, kind of off here, or they capture one off of I think that's it. I think they only, I think they only, they captured one not that far off of Clonakilty and that's it. But they're able to chase off the remaining submarines because they can drop these on them. And if the German submarine surfaces, they can blast them with their cannons. And the destroyers have much more powerful and longer range cannons than the Germans do. Can I get the next slide, please? Um, they also had about uh, 50 of these sub chasers, which are really small vessels. They had really bad kind of uh, microphone technology and they were supposed to have kind of a listening device. They were pretty much worthless. They, Americans invest a lot of money in them and they were pretty much worthless and they couldn't really operate in the open ocean. Uh, and they, were, they weren't as fast as the merchant ships. But there were, there were about 50 of these and they're headquartered at Passage West. And they had kind of, so there were a couple hundred sailors down at Passage. Can I get the next one please? Uh, and there were also a lot of supply ships. So this is the tender USS Melville. Uh, and they, so they had tugs, they had dry docks, they had, um, they had warehouses up in Dublin where they were getting these airplanes. Uh, the airplanes were shipped over in boxes and crates and then assembled in Cove and then kind of deployed that way. Can I get the next one, please? Um, they also had a submarine and then one after this. This is down in Bantry Bay. And uh, so they had about six American submarines down there as well. And again, support networks. So every one of these ships needs supplies, it needs weapons, it needs food, it needs provisions, it needs um, medical care, it needs barracks, it needs like recreation, all kinds of stuff. So there's a whole infrastructure being built up. And can I get the next one, please? Uh, and then uh, kind of 1918, the Americans deploy three battleships to um, Bantry Bay, and they're called the Bantry Bay Squadron. So this is uh, Utah, and the next one uh, is um, Oklahoma, and then the other one was Nevada, 
And those are all, all three of those ships were sunk in war, at Pearl Harbor in World War II. Oklahoma capsized kind of famously. And Nevada was one of the really famous American warships of World War II. So they were all there uh, as well. And actually, if you could go back one, please. Um, the Americans also had a bunch of these blimps. And basically, these were uh, small dirigibles that they would attach to ships. And they'd go up a couple hundred feet. And you have two kind of guys precarious with binoculars looking for submarines. So there were a couple hundred people, and they, they had a, a base in Whitty Island, and you needed all kinds of helium and lines, and so they had a base for them as well, and it's kind of big hangars. Um, so can we get a, another one, please? Uh, another one. And yeah, that's like a big supply ship also down in Cove. So again, you have thousands and thousands of, of kind of sailors around here. And one after this, please. Uh, dry dock at Hall Bolin. Um, so there was repair facilities and uh, okay, so what, how many do we have in the county? It's hard to tell at any one time. Um, I'd guess there were probably about six or 7,000 in Cove, maybe eight, uh, probably another three or four in, down in Bantry Bay, Castletown Bear and Whitty. So maybe 12, maybe 13,000 um, for most of 1918. They really ramped up kind of the late fall of, of 1917. Um, the kind of more interesting social aspect of these Americans, can I get the next one, please, is um, they had, uh, there were a series of riots against them uh, in Cork City. And uh, I've written a bit about this. Uh, what I would say about these guys, these Americans, was they were, they were professional sailors. They were regulars. They were probably pretty tough uh, just like you would see, they weren't draftees or conscripts. Uh, and the first ones that appeared, and can I get the next slide, please? Um, and uh, one after this, please. Uh, so the first, the first parties, the first sailors that came, uh, they were in, in Cove, and they would take the train up to Cork. And so they were very visible on the streets of Cork. Uh, and it's not really clear to me exactly what was happening, except there seems to have been a fair bit of sex in public. Uh, it's quotes, you know, talk about people appearing at the waterworks, running taxis and what have you. Um, also in Cove. Uh, and it's not clear, and there also were complaints about uh, prostitutes are being around, coming over from England. Uh, I don't have any statistics about, uh, about prostitute ar uh, arrests, but there's enough complaints that you think there might have been some pros kind of working in the streets as well. Uh, and then there was also, uh, they were also seemed to have been kind of vocal, kind of wolf whistling and, and kind of aggressive. So um, there was a case in Cove where an American uh, asked an Irish girl, uh, you know, take a walk with him. And uh, her boyfriend was there, <laughs> he was just kind of horrified. And uh, they got in a fist fight, and the American killed the guy. He punched him, he knocked his head, fractured his skull. Um, and then they were denounced as kind of vultures on Irish womanhood from, um, from the pulpit. And uh, this kind of, there was a, kind of an escalation and kind of hostility towards them. And eventually, in September 1917, uh, well, a, a mysterious vigilance committee. Uh, started attacking American sailors one weekend, uh, and also the, the the women who they were they were with, and just kind of beat them up. And there were mob attacks 
on Americans kind of really on McCurtain Street, also on, on uh, Oliver Plunkett Street and down on uh, Patrick Street. And the police were called out, uh, military police from Collins Barracks came down, uh, there were baton charges, people throwing stones at police, people beating up Americans, and it really, as an American, I find this quite hard to deal with. Um, there was also, so that took place and uh, Cork was declared out of bounds for the rest of the war to the Americans. Again, we don't talk about that much up in the city. Uh, and, uh, and it was a bit of a scandal and there was kind of an effort to kind of quiet it down. Cork woman then started taking the train down the cove. And uh, again, I'm not, it's not exactly clear to me what's going on. But there were a, a couple of different attacks on them by mobs in Cove, and, and then later on, well, I'll, I'll take a step back. In early 1918, uh, the British government introduced mandatory treatment of venereal disease. And venereal disease was um, seen as a real loss in, in British manpower, that they were losing a lot of guys who should be in the trenches, getting shot and to, to VD. So they had to do something to stop this. So they introduced legislation where any woman found infecting allied servicemen with VD could be jailed and, and basically forcibly treated. The men weren't. <laughs> it, was, it was only a one-way prosecution. Uh, shows you a lot about gender relations at the time. Um, and there was a big backlash against this in Ireland, in nationalist Ireland, where um, there had been a persistent kind of Republican any recruiting effort using VD, VD fear that uh, if you allowed your good, wholesome Irish boy to join a British regiment, he was going to get VD, uh, fall in with bad company. And uh, that had been going on since the Boer War. Uh, and there was also efforts by the British Army to open up a big VD hospital on Spike Island. So that really got people fired up especially the Catholic Church. So the bishops and local officials, town uh, councils, um, sent up motions denouncing the setting up of a VD leper colony in Ireland. Uh, and there was also fear that the Americans were infecting local women with VD, which again, I find outrageous. Uh, and, um, uh, there were, this seemed to have triggered another series of mob attacks on women in Cove, and then there was a major one in, uh, at Kent Station, uh, where uh, a big mob came in and dragged women out of the carriages, beat them up. Uh, Royal Irish Constabulary came out, they did bayonet charges, there were pistol shots exchanged, there was stone throwing, attacks on the police barracks, all hell broke loose. Uh, and then that kind of settled down. Now what's interesting about it is you saw something really similar in Limerick where uh, there had, was a fear in the same period you saw a series of disturbances against British soldiers in a Welsh regiment serving in Limerick City and almost the exact same thing. You saw all kinds of public outrage about VD being affected. Um, there were mob attacks on British soldiers. Uh, almost certainly Republicans were involved and Irish volunteers were involved in some of this, but also the Catholic Church was kind of encouraging it. And um, the, and you know, it's, it, all that broke out. What's interesting about Cork is uh, 
all the animosity was directed towards the Americans. There were British regiments serving in, Col in what became Collins Barracks, and the British soldiers weren't affected. Mobs didn't attack them, they had nothing to do with them. In fact, there's some speculation that some of the British soldiers might have joined in with the mobs attacking the Americans. Because uh, the Americans were also seen as kind of, they were seen as obnoxious, and also they were very well paid compared to the Royal Navy, the British soldiers. So they were kind of seen as throwing their weight around a bit. Um, and really what it is, it's kind of just a fear and a kind of a moral panic. Uh, but again, um, I just find the whole thing really offensive, and I'm looking for an apology from the Irish government. Uh, can I get another one, please? Uh, and um, Damien Shields, the great archaeologist and historian, did a good, um, and I'll finish up in a minute or so, uh, did, a, did a, a great exhibit down in Sirius uh, art, uh, art Center down in Cove, where he found passport photos from about 100 of these Cork women who married Americans, uh, American sailors, and went over. And he found that they were kind of celebrated as being you know, great uh, beauties, Colleen's, who were great at housework, you know, welcomed everywhere they went in America. Um, and again, it's hard, and can I get another one too, please? Uh, it's also hard to, uh, to figure out, um, yeah, please, uh, you know, who exactly these women were. And what it seemed to be is you had um, a lot of romantic liaisons and people falling in love. Uh, a number, what Damien found was uh, a, a large number of the women who married Americans came from kind of loyalist backgrounds. So some of them were unionists. Some of them also were the uh, daughters of people serving like in the Royal Irish Constabulary or in the British Army. So they kind of were part of that garrison. So they would have been more attractive, but not all of them. Can I get another one? And then um, there was probably also, there was a lot of poverty in Cork in this period, and there's probably a level of kind of, of prostitution or of people being paid for sex. I would, I would be surprised if that didn't happen. Um, so that was part of it. And then can I get another one, please? Um, so anyway, the whole, the, the submarine menace passes because of the introduction of, of convoying. The Allies win the war. Uh, the Americans leave. And can I get another slide, please? Uh, and this is the last ship leaving. Um, and so, you know, what's the what's the repercussions? Well, uh, we have this understanding and this perception of the Americans as being very pro-Irish during the War of Independence, and the idea of kind of devil air going over and big crowds of folks in Boston and Fenway Park and. Chicago, you know, kind of cheering them on. But there was a significant anti-Irish element in the states that didn't think the Irish, uh, the American government should have anything to do with the Irish question and support the Irish independence movement. This was also a period when the Ku Klux Klan was at its height, and the Ku Klux Klan at that period was, well, they hated black people uh, and Jewish people. They were also very anti-Catholic because there had been a strong wave of Catholic migration from Italy uh, and elsewhere, and Ireland and elsewhere, and Catholic countries, uh, and from the 1890s uh, and early part of the 20th century. So that anti-immigration movement really manifested itself in 1919, 1920, 21 in the States. And they found a lot of sympathy for this idea of a new Anglo-Saxon world running uh, world partnership 
what we call a special relationship between uh, Britain and the United States because they're both white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and they're natural ruling partners. And the people who were most vocal uh, and very much outgoing about this were American officers in the American Navy who had served in Cove in World War I. And they, find, they, found, they formed what was called the Queenstown Association, which kind of celebrated, they, they felt very much, for them, it was very much a coming of age for their service because the Royal Navy was the gold standard of all navies. And the Royal Navy had treated the Americans as equals and had celebrated their professionalism. So for this, this was a great thing. The American officers were also overwhelmingly white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. You don't find many Irish names among naval officers as compared to American army officers who are kind of a different demographic. So there's kind of a natural conservatism to the American Navy. And for, during kind of the, uh, in 1920 and 21, the big war hero, naval war hero from the United States, Admiral Sims, who had been in Cove, totally denounced Irish Americans, who he called uh, unloyal, disloyal, not 100% Americans. Uh, and he denounced De Valera, and he denounced those people of Cork who attacked his sailors and who worked with the Germans to kill Americans. And he was going out vocally saying this in public and giving talks about this. Uh, and there was a, a, a backlash. So uh, this had repercussions, these American attacks. And this experience, although we don't remember it here, uh, is very much part of the American Navy's kind of legacy. Um, that first painting we saw, uh, The Return of the Mayflower, uh, it captures the, the arrival of the, this American officer named Joseph Tausig. And Tausig kind of had just come across the Atlantic and he was taken up to the Admiralty House, which is now a, a, a convent. Uh, and he met the Royal Navy Admiral Bailey. And Bailey's like, okay, so how long before your ships can go back out and patrol? And Tausig said, you know, now, we're ready now. We can go whenever you want. And this became big propaganda. We are ready now, sir. And it was, you know, celebrated. And that's part of, in the American, the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. They have a big, we are ready now, sir. And uh, this is very much part of their myth about them arriving as a global power and as a global military power. And uh, what we what we should remember is this is very much, there's a huge Irish dimension to this. And this is very much a Cork story. And all these coastal communities here w would have been participants and would have been observers to all this, especially people right along here, because these all these ships were coming in and out, back and forth, and a lot of this activity was taking place right in our waters, where 600 vessels were sunk in Irish waters in World War I. And, uh, you know, if what, we're, what we find is that this is probably, uh, what happened here really helped the Allies win the First World War, whether that's, uh, and for that reason alone, it should be remembered. And I think that in these coastal communities, regardless of whether you care about how the American Navy uh, developed or what have you, it's this really important event uh, of global significance, and it's really much a cork event. So at that, I will leave you and open the floor for questions if you have them.
Thanks very much, John. I think we covered a lot of ground between medical and maritime and everything. So uh, I'll throw it open to the floor now. Anyone that wants to ask a question, you're more than welcome. Yeah. Thanks very much. Fantastic. Appreciate it. Um, I, uh, I would have much um, knowledge of, of naval warfare, but just would you be able to explain to me how come the Germans are in fire with fire? Why didn't they just deploy uh, British submarines um, to match the German submarines? Because you can't, you can't find them. Yeah. Big, well, kind of because obviously the, the, the submarines were going to be attracted to these convoys, so, right? So why do you think you bring this? So that was the argument against. So the argument against convoys was, oh, you're just putting together all the ships in one place, and then where will we be? Uh, and you, and rather than the needle in the haystack, so they were like, oh no, it's a needle in a haystack. Uh, one submarine finding one ship on the open ocean. What are the odds? Well, the odds are you stay right here in Irish waters where they narrow in. Odds are you're going to find them. Um, the response was. Uh, the, the reason the convoys were so successful is uh, basically sh the, the merchant ships zigzagged so and they only, they got rid of kind of slow moving ships. Um, so they're all escorted, they're all zigzagging and then these destroyers are acting like sheepdogs, just kind of running up and down the sides. So every time a submarine pops up to take a shot on them, they have one of these destroyers breathing down their necks and they have to submerge. And so they can't basically, uh, the, the convoys move really fast, and these anti-submarine escort vessels are really dangerous to submarines. So they they can't really shoot straight. So what they end up doing? So initially, they only convoy inbound ships. So what do the Germans do? They target the outbound ships. German, efficient. Uh, so the Allies, okay, we'll we'll get the inbound and outbound. Then if you look at at, at sunken vessels in 1918. Most of the sinkings are unescorted vessels that either fall out of convoys for mechanical difficulties or a lot of these little coastal ships that are, aren't carrying that much cargo anyway and aren't really that important. So uh, the whole thing is the availability of, of freighters to carry, uh, capacity to carry cargo. And so these big freighters are really valuable. And so uh, they, anyway, I'm digressing. So yes, does that make sense? <coughs> Yeah. So it must have decided there in 1916. Yeah. Was that something to do with the song or around that time? It's the, you know, the Germans had failed to win at the battle. So they had this big surface battle, Jutland. And the German fleet kind of ran out, fought a big battle, kind of won a moral victory, but got chased back. And the blockade didn't change. And they realized that they weren't going to be able to fight out. They realized how much this blockade was hurting the German public. When you think about what happened to Germany in World War I, basically their people just had enough. Their navy mutinied, their, their, their basically they had bread riots and food riots, uh, and their army kind of quit, didn't want to fight anymore. That became pretty obvious. And so, you know, the Germans, the Allies never even gotten to Germany because German, basically, they forced the Kaiser to abdicate. And the reason was because they were, fear of, they were afraid of famine. They had all these food shortages. So, what happened in 1916 was the German Navy realized they weren't going to be able to break this, break this blockade and they had to do something, even if what they were going to do was really dangerous. 
because they knew that they'd probably trigger an American intervention. And the reason the American intervention was so dangerous to Germany wasn't necessarily because of the two million American troops who come in, although that was kind of decisive. It was the Americans were financially supporting Britain and France. And they basically were propping up their economy by giving them billions and billions of dollars of war loans. And because of that inflation, which was so rampant and out of hand and created the conditions for the Russian Revolution, near collapse of, of Italy, the eventual collapse of Austria-Hungary and what have you, didn't really impact France and Britain as much as it could have. So that kind of financial support was key. John, on, on the question of um, the American soldiers in Cork, was there a similar phenomenon in the Second World War with the American soldiers in London, in England? Oversexed, overpaid, and over here? No. Totally. No, absolutely. There's a, there's, a, there's a constant. I would say something else, too, about the kind of the, the, the fear of infection. If you're reading, people who are really into their, their British Army World War I stuff always talk about the Palace Battalions. They're great. The Chums Battalions. And one of the, the kind of the big one is like, the, oh, the Irish Rugby Palace who went and died in Gallipoli. You know, isn't that grand? Uh, and part of the idea, so they, the, the British Army set up these specially recruited units where you could join as a body. So there was like, there was the artist rifles, of course, painters, all joined together. The stockbrokers, you know, company, uh, lawyers, solicitors, guys who worked in the city of London, uh, miners, you know, they would join as a big, or people from the same locale, the famous street, so they could form their own units and join together. So that's always kind of celebrated. Oh, the idea of fighting with your chums. That was part of it, but a big part of it was people from respectable households wouldn't serve in the British Army because it was seen as the lowest social strata. Only really poor people <clears throat> served in the British Army and were career soldiers. So they had to do something to, uh, the British government had to do something to encourage people to serve with their social, so they were afraid of serving with their social inferiors, so create units where everyone's kind of of the same social background. And part of it is to say, so this is all kind of a dynamic and part of the cliche about professional, and it's not just British servicemen, it's professional, small professional armies are like this everywhere. I was uh, saying earlier, there's a really good movie uh, called The Sand Pebbles from the 60s with Steve McQueen about American sailors in China based on a, a really good novel written by a guy who had been a, a career enlisted uh, sailor in the American Navy in the 20s in China. It's great, and, it, and it's exact same stuff. So, you know, what happens when you have to expand and bring in people? And what happens when these folks are also put into, uh, so like they, they didn't have these kind of disturbances in Cove, because Cove was used to sailors. Cove was used to rowdy guys coming in off the boats and partying and breaking up and doing what have you. That was part of their culture. A lot of coastal towns are like that today or whatever, you know, they're used to sailors, they're used to fishing trawlers and foreign big groups of sailors coming in. That's not a big thing. 
But if you're not used to it and it's a new dynamic and you have people from a different situation, you have all these different kind of uh, factors at play, you can have these kind of explosions. Yes, I mean the the German the blockade of Germany. Yeah, it brought it took it eventually won the war for the for the Allies. So there's not um, there's not really good statistics about it. Uh, a lot of people uh, end up dying of disease rather than of starvation. Um, there doesn't seem to be as much outright starvation, people dying of malnutrition, but uh, a lot of people who also study influenza, the epic influenza pandemic, attribute some of the high death tolls to the kind of weakened state of the civilian populations around the continent. That's, that's still kind of debated. Um, but uh, what I've also read about Germany and also kind of Austria-Hungary was um, there was also fear of famine. And fear of famine is also as effective as famine itself, and, if you, and that, will let, that will kind of lead to a lot of disturbances. Um, one thing that's interesting is there was fear of famine in 1918 in Ireland, and uh, the Republicans basically were preparing to stop all food exports to Britain, to not repeat that they were using kind of the language of the potato famine, the great famine, where grain was exported. Um, and this kind of uh, the alleviation of the blockade, the submarine blockade kind of stopped that effort in its tracks. Another country that did something very similar was uh, Hungary, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. The Hungarians were kind of like the Irish disaffected. And in 1918, they stopped exporting food to Austria. And they were part of the same country. So, you know, it's, it leads to, all, again, there's something that really focuses the mind, like fear that your whole family's gonna starve to death. So. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's the case as well that after the First World War, the blockade of Germany wasn't immediately lifted. It actually kept in place for quite some time, partly because they were trying to affect the outcome of the revolution, but also because they were triumphant and they weren't in a hurry to lift the blockade. Anyway, the question I'm going to ask you is, and you probably haven't liked this question, the, um, what lessons learned during the First World War in terms of the submarine battles? Were implemented in this area, you think, in the second one? So the the uh, the Allies introduced convoys almost straight away. Um, they used uh, they used airplanes straight away. The big thing, what you when I was I had this conference in the summer, and we had a bunch of these American kind of military strategist types uh, over, and uh, they also said that this very much set the template for the American-British cooperation and integration in World War II. So what I didn't really get time to, to talk about, in Cove, the Americans were operating under British control. That was the first time in American history that it ever happened. Um, Admiral Bailey at one stage left, and he left the American Admiral Sims in charge of Queenstown Station and all those ships. So Royal Navy ships were reporting to the American Admiral Sims, the first time in Royal Navy history that ever happened. So that kind of allied cooperation and integration was tried out and was seen as a real big success by both sides. And that really paved the way for what happened in World War II between the Americans and the, and the British. Special relationships and all that. Thank you, Dominic. 
<clears throat> no VD questions. Um, thank you very much for the talk, uh, very interesting. Um, I think the, the, at the end of uh, April uh, 1917, just to put it in um, uh, reality for people, it was, I think there was about six weeks of wheat left in England at that stage. Yeah, so it was, I mean, part of the, so part of the thing with uh, the, the cargo capacity, so you measure this stuff by tonnage, and that's the amount of cargo you can carry. So there was, a big shortage of cargo carrying vessels. There was food shortages already because the Russians had pulled out of the war and Ukraine and all that wheat, which they normally got, was gone. There had also been a bad wheat harvest in Canada. Uh, and I always blame Canada. Uh, and uh, there was also, the Americans were starting to, to send over troops and so there, was, so there was a shortage of vessels for carrying food to the civilians. They were always going to carry food for the armies, and they were always going to carry munitions, but they, uh, they were, there was much less capacity for wheat. What they ended up finding, a couple uh, of, of knock-on effects. Um, this is the period when beer composition got much weaker, when beer would, had been much stronger before the war, and beer uh, production was weakened or in terms of intoxicating, uh, like, we, beer used to have a lot higher alcohol content. And in the First World War, there were measures produced to save grain and save barley. Uh, and that, all of a sudden, the, the beer went from whatever, 7 or 8% alcohol to about 5 whatever it is today. So that beer changes. Whiskey distilling also almost went out of business because uh, whiskey was consuming a lot of grain, uh, whiskey production. Uh, and so they taxed the hell out of whiskey. Um, so that was great in the UK. In Ireland, that led to a huge explosion of poaching. So there was massive poaching production to, because, of, because of all the, all the taxes and, and the expense on whiskey. Uh, and that led, if you read anything about the War of Independence, we were talking about military service pensions and stuff, you often talk about, uh, hear about the IRA getting into conflict with poaching distillers, especially kind of out in the Cork and Kerry Present company excluded, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, the reason there was so much poaching in the country was poaching production had, had totally exploded in 1918 because whiskey uh, uh, consumption had gotten so expensive. So there you go. And that was basically how they got out of this food shortage was they also introduced stuff like they made, they made their bread differently. And so if you, ever, if you ever talk to people who have been around in World War II, the emergency, they always talk about how awful the bread was because it was just, they changed the, the different kind of yeast makeups and like sawdust in, all, and the, all those kind of economies in terms of food production ended up, they ended up making up a lot of the, the loss of grain, even, even, with, even without the, the loss of shipping. They were still able, they were basically just, they were much carefully about what they were producing. They also started uh, making a lot of margarine rather than butter. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> John, in the Second World War, there was a lot of British propaganda that more or less said at the end of the day's work, the U-boat crews would come into southern Ireland, park their submarines and go to the pub. Was there any propaganda like that in the First World War? Yes. So there was, yeah, there was the idea, there was uh, a, a, an impression that there were secret Irish bases for the U-boats. Because it was also the U-boats were really mysterious. Like they were new, no one really knew how they operated. 
or in terms of you know how they're patrolling, there was there was quite mysterious, and so yeah, there was there was uh, good question. Uh, there was uh, some propaganda that there were secret bases in Cork. Again, I think I was coming from Dublin. Also, uh, Waterford was somehow having secret German bases, um, and then. There was also persistent fear that the Amer that the, the Republican, the IRA, the volunteers were signaling and um, directing German U-boats to uh, American warships and to British British shipping, which was total BS. Um, but if you read uh, like Admiral Sims' account, or if you read Admiral Bailey's thing, they talk about the Republicans basically working with the Germans to target ships, and that's total nonsense. That never happened. But it was believed by the highest. So there's kind of an anti-Republican paranoia totally filtered through both the British and the American navies in 1917 and 1918, and that carried over um, during afterwards in the 20s and stuff. So that's why I'm saying that this, this kind of animosity towards De Valera's tour was really vocalized. And one of the things the American officers were saying was that the, these Sinn Feiners had worked to kill Americans. So that was seen as kind of an effective propaganda thing. Would, yeah. the, would the case, the larger case, the episode 1916, even after Queen's uh, propaganda? In fairness, <laughs> he was landed by a German submarine. So, yeah, yeah, yeah kind of, and, you know, the Germans landing 20,000, trying to land 20,000 rifles. Yes, there was. A, and also, in these first round of riots, uh, the the, the the young mob was shouting up the Kaiser, <laughs> so yeah, there was a lot. Of, there was I agree, I agree that there there was you got that throwing in. Uh, fortunately, we had the blue bell out there <laughs> and the other flower sloops. I just want to say also about uh, another un <laughs> poorly named British warship was uh, there was in the Irish Civil War. Um, a British warship had landed a party and the IRA was occupying one of the Coast Guard stations at Lakeen, kind of near Kenmare, and um, they fired on this, IRA, on this British shore party and the British warship returned fire and destroyed the Coast Guard station and it was called the HMS Badminton. And I thought that was like the worst, like HMS Badminton. <laughs> what kind of, what, how's that going to strike the fear into anybody? So I think the whole Royal Navy had to really get their act together on warship naming because not working. John, thanks very much. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and finally, John, I sincerely like to thank you. It was a brilliant talk, and you know we're coming to the centenary of anniversaries, and we love you coming out again to us. You know, so thanks very much, and safe all day. Thank you. Thank you.